all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Hope everybody is having a great day today, whether you are listening live, which we always enjoy, our live listeners. and uh, But we're also fortunate to be able to extend that out through our podcast or through our website to others who cannot listen on Wednesdays at 11. Uh, but we do uh, want to wish a welcome to everybody out there. Maybe it's the first time you've been listening to this. Southern Remedy. Just as a reminder, on our program on Wednesdays, as part of our Southern Remedy lineup, we tend to not have a focused uh, topic for the day, so a little bit different than our other Southern Remedy programs, and uh, that's mainly to let you sort of dictate what the topics are, and you don't have to follow the last caller with their topics. You can call in with anything that has to do with your health care, or maybe it's somebody in the family or a friend. We do take the uh, email. Um, sometimes people have a little bit more longer things to say, or maybe they'll send a picture or something else uh, in the email. That email, we are, we're happy to take those to and to respond to you directly, but also to share those if you're okay with that on the air, because they're always good topics. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Mention our podcast. Just search for that on any of your favorite podcasting apps. And uh, don't we're not favorites of any, just one. So you can search for Southern Remedy on MPB uh, Think Radio. Well, it is hot. And uh, man, I think most of the state of Mississippi and probably some surrounding states, too, had a little bit of a reprieve yesterday. It's interesting. You know, you know, you live in the deep south when in August... When the temperature dips down to 89 uh, with a breeze and cloud cover and you're like, wow, it feels like October already. Uh, that's quite different than the, than a lot of the other places in the state. I was just talking with Kevin Farrell, our producer, who got back from a trip recently into a different state with a little bit different weather pattern. And uh, you sure can when you hit that tarmac in Jackson. Those of you who know what I'm talking about, you know, you may have been somewhere else. And then as soon as that uh, door opens uh, to the jetway, you're like, oh, there's that humidity. Certainly makes a huge difference. I um, probably push things myself a little bit too much. So I just want to say you need to take care of yourself out there. I'm talking to myself too, sort of preaching to the choir here. But you need to um, hydrate often. Uh, if you're outside, try to pick those times that are going to be 
uh, less likely to have high heat and uh, it's going to be a little bit uh, better able to deal with that heat. So that's early in the morning, later in the night. Um, but if there's any kind of, um, you know, if, if you have to get out during the day in the middle of the day, which that was my mistake, uh, make sure it's just for small amounts of time because you can uh, get dehydrated in a quick minute. And particularly if you have chronic health conditions like diabetes, hypertension, or if you're on medications that uh, have to do deal with your blood pressure or pulse rate or those kinds of things, then you might want to just take some extra precautions. So just uh, think about that. Speaking of email, we did get one uh, recently that talked about um, uh, appetite, basically. So this is uh, from somebody in their late 20s. They weigh 200 as a male, weighing tw- 280 pounds. A few weeks ago, I stopped feeling hun- hunger entirely, which is unusual for me, and started feeling out of breath while doing things like walking into work. Over the past couple of days, food has been unappealing, and I'm getting fuller much sooner. I'm wondering if this sounds like gastroesophageal reflux disease. I've been taking Pepsid and Omeprazole, and it's not really uh, not noticing any effect. I have a doctor's appointment next week, and we'll bring it up. But is there anything I should talk to my doctor about? While there are uh, while there are other other than than what I've described, so excellent question. Uh, we would call this early satiety and uh, anorexia. So anorexia has sort of a negative connotation, but it is a symptom, and in, in addition to being a, a disease state, but it's basically you have you don't feel hungry, so uh, you can have a lack of appetite is another way of putting it, and there are many different reasons why you may have this. So uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease, usually it is accompanied by pain, a burning pain that's usually anywhere from uh, your sternum, your breastbone, all the way down to your stomach. Um, And it can be sort of a burning pain that's made worse with certain foods, spicy foods, overeating, uh, alcohol, chocolate, uh, all of those things can sort of exacerbate it for certain people. And basically, that's where the stomach contents that have a pH, a measure of of how acidic they are, of about two to three normally, and it's supposed to be that way. But when you lose uh, the control of that uh, that muscle band at the bottom of the esophagus, that's the the tube that connects the bottom part of the throat to the stomach. When uh, that's a little bit looser, those stomach contents can go back up into the esophagus, and they're not really designed, that area of tissue is not really designed to deal with the increased acid content. So that's where you get those symptoms. Um, there's also something maybe a little gross to hear this, but you know, this, this is Southern remedy. So we're dealing with medical things. Water brash is another thing that goes along with that. So sometimes patients will say, you know, I had a little burp and, uh, it really, uh, it fed burned when I burped. And that's basically stomach contents that are coming back up into that bottom half of the esophagus. So it is fairly easy to treat. A lot of people will just take either over the, over the counter and acids that act directly to lower to uh, actually raise the pH to lower the the uh, acidic contents in the stomach those are things like toms um, but uh, also there are some medications like uh, this caller mentioned pepsid or things like prilosec and those can sort of alter the stomach's ability to secrete acid now while that is very common and you can lose a lot of weight on that and not have an appetite you usually are going to have those symptoms with this 
So if you have early satiety, the feeling that you're already full before you ate or you're full before you normally would eat some things, there are some other things that your physician is probably going to want to do. One is a thorough exam, uh, abdominal exam, to see if there's any kind of other organs that are enlarged and maybe pushing on your stomach. Or uh, maybe if you have an abnormal exam of the rest of your GI tract to try to delve into what's going on. They may get some lab work. They may get some imaging. And there's two main kinds of imaging, well, really three, uh, for the abdomen. Uh, One is an X-ray, and that can tell you some basic information, but it doesn't really show you the soft tissues like the stomach, the spleen, the liver, the intestines, uh, the pancreas, gallbladder. Those are, are much better visualized through either a CT scan or an ultrasound. And uh, they may, depending on the symptoms in the exam, want to look at those first. But there are some blood tests that they can test for, say, liver enzymes for protein levels. And there's many different reasons why you might have a loss of appetite like that. Sometimes there are endocrinologic, uh, endocrinologic, Uh, endocrine, let's just say it that way, Jimmy. Uh, So sometimes there are endocrine reasons for that. And, uh, you know, there may be some some abnormalities of your pancreas or your thyroid gland that need to be investigated. And again, those can be lab tests that they get to try to delve into that a little bit further. But uh, definitely something as a 20-year-old presenting with these symptoms, I wouldn't just write it off, particularly if it's been going on as long as they said it was. Uh, probably needs to be looked at in a little bit more detail. And then this is one that's overlooked a lot. Stress, anxiety, depression, those can all uh, decrease your drive to eat. So you can actually lose weight and you can just not have any interest in food. So those are all reasons, you know, some of the more basic things. But that loss of appetite is one of those symptoms that easily you could have a list of 50 different things in about six different systems in the body that uh, play into that. So it is a fairly complex system. And that's why getting other symptoms along with that is very important. And then um, making sure that you get a good exam to go along with it. So there are some limitations about what we can do over there, but that was that's where I would start. I think seeing a doctor is probably the best thing to do at this particular time, particularly since it's not getting any better with those uh, with those medications that treat gastroesophageal reflux. So thank you for uh, calling in with that email. And again, that email address for those of you who are a little bit more timid to call in is remedy at mpbonline.org. Um, I've had callers that say, you know what, I or people that run into me and they're like, hey, you're that guy on the radio. I listen to you every once in a while. Um, I wanted to call, but I just felt like my what I you know my question really wasn't that applicable to other people. I guarantee you, every call that we've ever received, I think there's probably at least one and probably more people in our listening area that need to hear about that too, and you can help them. So that's one of the things I love about uh, our program is that we get to help other people uh, not just answer that one person's call, but also to help other people that might have some similar uh, questions. So, you know, chronic pain is an issue for a lot of people. And as we get older, particularly for things like degenerative joint disease and osteoarthritis, those are things that uh, sort of those wear and tear diseases on the body that you can do a little bit of things for them. And certainly there's lots of modalities that can help. But chronic pain remains an issue that impacts 
a lot of people. Uh, and again, it gets worse as we get older. But there's a lot of literature now. You know, we used to, even when I started training 30 some odd years ago, uh, there really wasn't as much known about this. And we certainly went to pharmacologic treatment, or in other words, medications, to try to decrease pain and get people moving around and uh, just really trying to address the pain issue. But there are other modalities that are very useful depending on where the pain is and what the cause of the pain is. We call that the fancy doctor word, if you want to use it, is etiology. Etiology. Now, that doesn't have anything to do with eating. Um, but basically, you know, before sometimes we jump into some of the more prescription, heavier strength pain medications, uh, we'll try over-the-counter pain medications, Tylenol, Advil, ibuprofen, those kinds of things. But then certain modalities, particularly strengthening the muscles around a joint, if it's due to degenerative joint disease, can be very effective. It does take some time to do that, and it needs to be done under the supervision of, most of the time, a physical therapist um, who has a prescription from a physician to do that. And it's very effective over the long term. It's a little bit more... I think a lot of people that go through that, and I'm one of them that's been through physical therapy a couple of times, um, it's, you know, something that if the, they're doing their job right is very difficult up front, but the payoff on the back end of it is huge. So if you've got chronic pain and you've been sort of eschewing or, you know, those uh, people saying you need to go to physical therapy, it's like, what is that going to do for my shoulder or my hip or my back pain? Think again about that, and if your physician thinks that's a great, you know, uh, an, an option for you, I would try that for six to eight weeks or even longer, depending on what what they're sending you for. But that's one of those modalities that that can help. We'll touch on some of those probably uh, with the rest of the hour, but I do want to get to our first caller, Amy from Batesville. Good morning, Amy. Thank you for calling. Hey, how you doing? Good. Thanks for calling. Um, so I wanted to ask about migraine headaches. I have been suffering with migraines for several years now. Um, I take a shot once a month to try to prevent it. And I have all of the ones, the Ubrelvi and the Nurtec, and I've taken all the things. But I still struggle with migraines more than 20 days a month. So mm. what are some some other maybe more homeopathic ways or yeah. like I work with my neurologist, I do all the things that I'm supposed to do, but what are some other things that I could do to help? Yeah, that's a great question. And migraines are very common. Um, a lot of people have them uh, probably not as, as severe as what you described, but, and you know, you were, you were sort of rattling off a lot of the treatments that you had and by, under the care of your neurologist. And it does sound like you've, done some of the more intensive therapies for that, whether that was, you know, injectables that are uh, long acting to help prevent that or other medications to take uh, to try to abort the headaches when you get them. Uh, but as far as homeopathic, there is a lot of research in this and there are some things that have helped a lot of people with migraine headaches with prevention. And they may, some of them sound incredibly simple, uh, but are, are probably one of the bigger triggers of it. I would say before we get into that, one of the best things to do, and I bet you've probably done this, I, I would imagine your, your neurologist has suggested this, <laughs> but uh, is a headache diary. And uh, it, it is incredibly powerful because you get to see what the triggers are over time. And, and basically, it's not, it doesn't have to be fancy. Basically, when you have a migraine headache and, and it's the first you know, inkling of that, most people with migraines, 
they have they you know some people say well how, they they say things like I'm about to get a migraine headache and a lot of people give them a hard time because they'll they'll say well either you have it or you don't but what they're describing is the aura so it's mm-hmm. an aura is the surrounding uh, it's that you know Greek I think word you know that we have for that uh, sort of surrounding light like around a star or a planet. So it's that aura around that event that happens. And for some people, those are like bright lights or funny smells or just feeling a certain way. That is important to write down because sometimes the aura can be thirty minutes to a couple of hours before you actually have the headache. And then note what you're eating, what you're doing, how much sleep you got. Just taking a diary like that, you can sort of be a detective about what kind of things are truly triggering the headaches. And then if you note a couple of triggers that are modifiable, that's an easy thing to change. Maybe it is decreased sleep at night. And I have had a lot of patients that had a horrendous time with migraine headaches and finally, we were like, you know, let's look at your sleep patterns. And they thought their sleep was fine. We sent them to a sleep specialist. They got a sleep study, and they're like, no, you're not getting any quality sleep at night. That's probably what's triggering all these migraine headaches. They were treated for that. Their migraines got better. So that's one thing to think about. You know, what we eat, uh, our stress levels, um, the types of foods we eat, sleep patterns, all of those things can contribute to it. Hydration is another one, and we just got through, you know, mentioning how hot it is in the South and how I think all Mississippians, including in Batesville, up in the far north of the state, um, uh, you know, it, during this time of year, it is incredibly hard to not get a little bit dehydrated every once in a while. So proper hydration and trying to stay ahead of the game is important for migraines. Riboflavin has been looked at, too. I don't know if you've tried that. It's been more studied in pediatric and adolescent patients with migraine headaches. It is a B vitamin, totally safe. You actually can take it over the counter and in fairly high doses. And I think it's 400 milligrams is sort of the, the minimum dose. You can't take too much of that, really, because it's eliminated in your urine. So that's not, you know, something that you need to worry about. But for a lot of people, that's been a good uh, sort of preemptive way to to stave off migraines. And they just take it every day. It's not really good when you have a migraine to take it, but taking that every day. And, of course, there's a lot of stuff on the Internet out there with different kinds of herbs. And, you know, what I tell people, particularly if they've, you know, more than 20 days a month with that therapy that you're taking, I would say, hey, try everything that's not going to hurt you. And, uh, you know, it's good to run that by a, you know, a pharmacist that has some of of the compounding pharmacies. They usually have somebody that on staff that has a little bit more knowledge of some of the more homeopathic herbs and those kinds of things about things that might hurt you if they're not going to, if they're not going to hurt you and not going to interact with anything that's going on with like a medical condition or other medications, then by all means, try it. And if it works, that's great. Um, but the, the actual studies on individual things outside of say riboflavin have been pretty poor um, and it's more anecdotal than it is a lot of you know evidence there. But again, if it works for you, that's great, and it's not going to harm you. But that's where I would start. And sometimes, even if you've done the the um, headache diary, if you go back to it again, you might tease out certain things that you're seeing that are triggers. Uh, but you may want to ask your your neurologist about sleep. 
Um, if, you know, maybe a sleep specialist might be there if you, again, I'm just assuming that you haven't seen them. Um, but that, that may be another avenue to look at. That's a great idea. And I have done the headache journal. And um, one thing that really helped me, like carrying around something didn't work. But if I just jot it in my phone or I even just push the button and say, hey, Siri, make a calendar event, headache, and then say this thing, it keeps it for me without having to carry something around. Yeah. That made my yeah. headache journal possible. Yeah, that's a great idea. You know, use the technology, make our technology uh, useful rather than uh, us being used by the technology. I think that's it. But uh, yeah, for I, I can imagine for some people, they're like, oh, that's going to make me have a headache if I try to use my phone that way. But bottom line, <laughs> use what works for you. And that would be the way I would do it, too. I like list on my phone and I, I have a ton of them like that. Um but by the way, like I'm on the beta testing for the new software. So in the fall, all, all of us, you know, iPhone people, uh, they're doing away with hey. So all you have to say is Siri. So that's sort of nice. One less word, right? Nice, right? Make it faster. <laughs> Amy, I hope that gives you a little bit of direction. But go back to your neurologist next time and say, hey, you know, what about sleep? I mean, can we at least look at that? And if it's okay, it's okay. If not, hey, that might be something that could impact things for the better. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for calling. Uh, Miami from Oklahoma. Mamie from Oklahoma. Oh, Mamie. I'm so sorry. I was like, wow, that's like a destination, but from Oklahoma. Okay. So, sorry I got your name wrong. Uh, yeah, I have um, arthritis, shoulder pain, and I've been taking the uh, steroid shots for, you know, every quarter. Uh-huh. But I, I'm asking to see, uh, I'm doing some exercises. I'm wondering if that's harmful or helpful. I've, I can't, I haven't noticed any difference. Gotcha. Do you know, let me ask you a specific question. You may or may not know the answer to it. That's okay. But d- did they say that this was a rotator cuff problem or is this more of the actual joint itself, like the bones? The joints itself, uh, uh, they say I don't have any ligaments. I'm just bone on bone mostly. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, and there, sometimes both of those can be together. Um, and generally, you know, the shoulder, it has a lot of mobility. Um, so it's much more mobile than, say, the hip. The hip is, is has some mobility, but it's it's a true ball and socket joint. Well, the, the shoulder, because it has more, the more mobile a joint is, the more things that can go wrong with it, particularly if you have a weakness in one or more muscles or ligaments or tendons. And most of the time you get an injury to that. And then over time, the because it it um, it articulates those bones move up against each other in an unnatural way. Over time, you can develop arthritis. You can wear down that cartilage that helps keep it nice and and slick between those bones. So, um, you know, there are certain things, certainly the steroid injections can decrease inflammation. You sort of alluded to the fact that you can only get a certain number of those a year because of the negative side effects of that. And the longer you take them, even if you're only getting them once a quarter, it can increase your risk of things like diabetes and osteoporosis. Um, so it's not it's, it certainly doesn't fix the issue. It makes it a little bit more tolerable. Um, shoulder surgery, uh, particularly that around the joint, used to be fairly hard. They've gotten a lot better with that. So there are some 
really specialized surgeons that um, that do a shoulder replacement. But again, it, it does need to be sort of coordinated with what is your function going to be after that. And I was just talking to one of my patients yesterday about shoulder surgery. And in his case, you know, we sort of came to the conclusion that it may not be such a good idea. Uh, just because that shoulder, it takes a long time with a shoulder surgery, particularly if it's shoulder replacement, but even with a rotator cuff repair, a lot of times that is months of rehab and you can get good functionality. But if you're having other problems, like my patient was having problems, you know, getting up and down because of other arthritis. Well, if you take one shoulder out of it uh, and right now he's able to use it, then that's going to make his overall mobility sort of go down. So you do have to take that into consideration. Um, So short of that, um, you know, there may be some other smaller surgeries that they can do to help repair the muscles around it. I wouldn't abandon some of those exercises that they showed you. I'm assuming that the physical therapist showed you how to do that. You can go back to physical therapy and they can, you know, help sort of fine tune that. I think a physical therapist as coaches. Um, it's almost like a sport. Like if you're a tennis player or you're um, a golfer, you know, you may know how to do that. Um, but over time, you can develop some habits that maybe are not quite the way you should be swinging that, you know, that club or that racket. And you need a coach to look at you every once in a while and say, oh, you're doing that a little bit wrong. I think if you did it this way, then, you know, that might be an easier way to do it. Physical therapists can do that. So even if you didn't have a good or maybe you had a good response initially or a little bit of a response, going back to them might be helpful, you know, to do that. And then finally, for chronic pain. Outside of the injections in the shoulder, um, there are other medications that you can take that are good across the board for any kind of chronic pain. So things like gabapentin, Lyrica, Cymbalta, uh, there's a couple of others. Uh, even in, you know, in some situations, opioids are um, appropriate to do that. You know, for a long term, you just have to be careful with those. But, um, you know, going to a pain specialist, too, might be another option that can sort of put together a total program that may not be just that one thing that's going to improve things, but maybe it's three things or five things that together are going to get you the mobility that you need and decrease the amount of pain that you're having. All right. Thank you very much. Um, I appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling, and good luck to you. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy Stewart with you this morning, answering your questions and taking your calls about any kind of health care topic that you have. Maybe it's a new symptom. Maybe it's a diagnosis that you got and that you didn't quite understand or what the prognosis was long term. And talked a little bit at the uh, top of the hour about chronic pain, and certainly that's a that's a big issue. Um, you know, we we touched on things like physical therapy, um, making sure that whatever is, you know, causing the pain that you address that first. And um, the next step in that is to try some things. Uh, if you've already tried over-the-counter medications, is to think about hitting it from a number of different directions. In other words, hitting it from a medication direction, hitting it from a manipulation and making sure, like if it's a joint, like a shoulder joint, like our last caller, um, making sure that that joint is stabilized by those muscles as much as possible so that you're not doing more damage. 
and um, also to think about other medications that you can give. And, you know, when I again, when I was in training, uh, we gave a lot of opioids to everybody and it worked really well. What did happen, though, and we didn't anticipate is that we had a lot of patients that although they were having their pain relieved, that sort of up front, it sort of went away after a while and it wasn't too good after about three or four days. And the, um, the number of people um, who became uh, physiologically um, uh, dependent on these medications was alarming. And we saw a lot of people that had a lot of problems with that and a lot of deaths associated with that, not necessarily from overdoses, but from side effects of those medications, particularly uh, the depression of the, your respiratory drive, the ability to breathe, uh, your mentation and being able to, to do complex things. And by complex, I don't mean rocket science or working for NASA. I mean, driving down the street or operating heavy machinery. So a lot of people, <clears throat> we've had a lot of people uh, have problems with that. We've had a lot of people die over the years and decades, and we've learned a lot about it. Um, unfortunately, I think a lot of people are just avoid them completely. I still think there is a um, there's a, a nice window for some people to get improvements with those. But you do have to realize certain things. And we've had callers and, and emailers, uh, listeners to the program, ask questions about that, particularly some of the changes around prescribing some of the opioids and other medications like opioids, like tramadol is a good uh, good example of that. Uh, first of all, there is now in most states, including Mississippi, there is a uh, a database that tracks prescribing of those things, and that's to ensure the safety of patients, uh, to make sure that we don't aren't overcomplicating things. You know, sometimes. You can have every good intention of going to the ER for something and being prescribed pain medicine there, but you're already on pain medicine that they may not know about. So that's one of the ways that we check that. So anytime we prescribe an opioid medication or really any controlled medication, and by controlled I mean it's it's got those side effects like that uh, that we just described, then that's in a database that you can review or you can have somebody in your office review. Uh, so that's just the medical physician that can see that. And uh, again, that's tracked by how much that that individual person is taking so that you'll know before you prescribe additional medication if it's going to be dangerous and then where they're getting that prescribed from at different pharmacies. And after you review that database, there are some limitations on how much you can get. So there are some quantity limits on what is, again, safe for that individual person to get. Uh, and um, you can only send in refills for certain medications. So I know a lot of patients are like, well, all the rest of my medications, you give me 90-day supply with three refills. Why can't you do that for, say, tramadol? Uh, well, because of those limitations. So those are limits that, um, you know, for good reasons, uh, are there to help protect patients. And even if it's a medication that they've taken for years, uh, there are still ways to, to try to ensure that safety. And that's another thing to keep in mind, too. Although pain medications that you're taking, uh, you know, as you get older, you're going to metabolize those differently. So there are dosage changes that we keep in mind and certain medications that we may want to de-escalate or take you off of over time. Um, I do find that a lot of my patients that have chronic pain and they've been on opioids for years, 
um, you know, when I ask them, do you think this is really doing any good? And a good majority of them will say, you know, I really don't think so. Then we can, you know, wean those patients off of those medications over days to weeks and oftentimes avoid some of those negative side effects and maybe think about some other things to do. Uh, as a previous caller mentioned, you know, there are sort of homeopathic ways to do some things. And certainly there's lots of pain remedies out there. Some of them are more complex than others. Some of them are very simple uh, for a lot of people, uh, either warmth or uh, cold uh, temperatures to an affected place where you have pain can be very effective. Some people do topical skin uh, stimulation, like with a brush or something else that's sort of crowding those nerve pathways to that area that is very helpful for them to do that. And again, we need to, you know, we've talked about goals of therapy for all kinds of things on this program. Same kind of thing for chronic pain. Uh, it's imperative that you, you talk to, take the time to talk to your doctor about what your goals are. In other words, not just the absence of pain. That's probably unrealistic for most people. But um, a better one would be, hey, I want to I play with my grandchildren. I want to be able to pick them up. I want to be able to walk down to the mailbox and back. I want to be able to spend time with my significant other doing things. Those are our, all very specific goals of therapy that your physician and other team members uh, that are taking care of you, like physical therapists, like pain clinic specialists, that they can really get on board with and say, okay, let's see if we can get you there. That's what we, you know, that's that's one of the things that we want to focus on. And that's much more attainable than saying, I just don't want any pain anymore. Uh, because again, for chronic pain, that's usually an unrealistic expectation. So just keep that in mind and always, always seek out help with the people who are best trained for that. And again, we mentioned, you know, pain specialists, they actually go through additional training, um, most of them are anesthesiologists that have already gone through training in anesthesia um, as a specialty, and then they do uh, a fellowship, additional training after that in pain medicine. So they do have a lot of expertise. It's not all about injections. It's not all about medications. It's about all kinds of different modalities to try to apply that to each individual patient situation to try to get them pain relief and attain those goals that we talked about. So hopefully that'll um, answer some of those questions about, you know, 30 days supplies rather than 120 days supplies and those kinds of things. So, Dr. Jimmy, I'd like uh, to follow up sort of piggybacking on your discussion about chronic pain and talking about uh, minor aches and pains. I know as we grow older, I think sometimes you wake up and maybe your back is a little bit stiff or whatever, or if you have played tennis or golf, gone out and exercised, maybe you're a little bit sore. So my question is, what is sort of the everyday aches and pains versus when do you need to go ahead and go to your doctor about it? And also, grin and bear it. It's like, man, it's going to go away. I don't need to go to the doctor. Can that lead to trouble? Yeah, a great question. You know, one of the things about pain is it is a subjective um, interpretation of something that is there for a reason. Like pain's, pain's an excellent thing. Uh, if you have the absence of pain, you start to hurt yourself, right? Like I've had uh, some, uh, unfortunately, patients of mine who have diabetes and have diabetic neuropathy and loss of sensation in their feet. 
that put a shoe on and had a piece of metal like a screw or a nail that was in their shoe uh, that had fallen there, and they couldn't feel it. And they ended up having a horrendous pressure ulcer to that area because of that, because they couldn't feel it. So pain is important. But um, when it becomes something that, you know, and we all are going to injure something. Most people are going to injure something. But everybody's perception of it is a little bit different. Um, pain that impedes what you would normally do and persist beyond a few days is usually a general rule of thumb. Now, you know, like if you have abdominal pain and you have nausea and vomiting and diarrhea, um, if that goes on more than six to eight hours, probably, you know, depending on the patient, you might need to have that checked out. Um, but, um, yeah, if it's intensive pain that's not getting better, particularly with some of the normal things like just, you know, sitting there and giving it a break, if it's your arm or leg or something like that, or um, that you're taking Tylenol or Motrin and it's not getting better, then you probably need to see a physician fairly quick about those kinds of things. But if it's like you said, if, you know, if you've gone out like I did last night to the gym and I was like, you know what, I think I'm going to run a little faster on this treadmill. And right now my left calf is telling me, yes, you ran a little faster and I am feeling it. Uh, so that's going to be there probably another couple of days and then go away. And that's sort of the normal thing. Um, Physical therapists will tell you this, too. As you deal with pain, uh, my physical therapist, um, uh, Jordan Hill was his name, and uh, Jordan used to tell me, kiss the pain. So you want to go right up to the pain level, and it's it's sort of a discomfort, but you don't want to go over it. Um, so go right up to it. It's not that really intense pain, but it's that discomfort and or just a little bit of pain. And again, that's really something that's individual to, you know, different people. And certainly we've all probably pushed it. I'm the world's worst at pushing up to the, the level of pain and going over it. So I'm going to always do too much. We're going to go to Mary from Oxford. Good morning, Mary. Good morning. How, what's your question this morning? I am going to be traveling next week to Spain for a couple uh, of weeks. Okay. I'm playing. And I've heard that people, a couple of people I've heard about in my community have gotten COVID, one of them, the second time. I'm wondering if I need another vaccination before I go. I've had four. The last one was in October. Okay. Was that the bivalent one? Do you remember that? No, I doubt it. I was okay. one of those boosters. So, so the current... The the current recommendations are particularly if you're older, if you have, you know, if you're older over the age of 65, if you're going to travel like that where you're in situations where you might have an exposure, if you haven't had the bivalent vaccine um, and it's been more than than five months between the last one you got in the bivalent uh, sorry, three months, then you need to um, probably get that. So. I would say it's probably worthwhile to do that just because and the bivalent just has it's a little bit more specific for the uh, the Omicron series of um, uh, that was sort of the big group of the last ones. I just saw some data yesterday on what we're seeing right now. And we have died, started started to diagnose a couple of more, you know, uh, covid uh, um, cases in the in the community. Um the variant, the the prominent variant out there, and there's, and I say prominent, but it's I think it's around twenty percent. So it's not like it's overwhelmingly the one variant. 
it's it's sort of in that same range. Still an issue for people who might have a weakened immune system. If you're older, if you have chronic diseases, um, those are all people uh, that you need to get that that bivalent booster. If you've already gotten that, then I would say that's not a big issue. It's always a good idea to look at where you're going to, which Spain should be fine. But there are some other places that are surprising sometimes that have local outbreaks. And the CDC website has information on there that you can go to just to check and see if there's something else that you might want to avoid or something that you might get. But Spain's usually pretty good for the for the country pretty much, you know, all over. But if it were me and it's been since October, um, I probably would get the bivalent uh, vaccine before I went. And at least two weeks beforehand would be optimal if you don't have that amount of time mm-hmm. still probably would give you yeah. some some protection. Yeah, I'm leaving Tuesday. Yeah. I don't know how much protection you get, you know, before you go. How long are you going to be there? Two weeks. Yeah. It might, it, that might be worthwhile. Um, but if you're going to get it, I probably would get it now just because, you know, the, any kind of feeling right. bad, you know, before you get on the plane, probably want to go ahead and do that if, if you have those symptoms. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's a common question we we get about COVID. But basically, if you're in that the, one of those groups, and you can go on the CDC CDC website and see this, uh, see sort of the um, um, you know the guidelines for that, um, then you probably need to get that that booster bivalent booster if you haven't gotten it. But that's always a good idea. But if you you know even even countries in Europe sometimes have outbreaks that you need to know about, and some vaccinations might be uh, more worthwhile than others uh, to go there. So something to keep in mind. Travel. Our infectious disease specialists they do have some information about that kind of thing. Uh, so travel is, uh, is they have travel clinics that you can go to if you're going to Central America, South America, Africa, uh, the Middle East, Asia. That might be, and you're going to stay there more than about a week. That might be some information that you might want to get a little bit more in depth. Um, uh, advice on what you need. Um, and it can be a little bit hard to arrange some of the vaccines to those areas. So you might have to go to the health department. So it's not something that you can just go in the clinic and get something at the last minute. All you people who don't plan that out and do last minute things know that that might take a little bit of time. So, but if you're going to any of those areas, um, you're probably, I, I would say, to at least get some input from somebody like that. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Southern Remedy is a production is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. You can tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.